Welcome to the Psycho Media Podcast. I am Evil Timothy Swan. <laughs> and I am Evil Ben Fell. And this week, they said we'd be mad to splice the rigorous scientific approach of experimental psychology with the irreverent comedy stylings of internet podcasting. But we'll show them. We'll show them all. <laughs> yes, this week our topic is mad scientists and evil genius type experiments that actually turn out to have happened. Welcome to Psychomedia, uh, where we find the comedy in psychom- psych- psychology. Psychomedy. Psychomedy. Wow, that was nothing if not a cold open. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, totally unprepared, unrehearsed. (laughs) And it shows. (laughs) Right. Uh, How's it going, Tim? I'm all right, yeah. uh, I'm having a strange week because that's what my life is like now. (laughs) I assume the same applies to you. Oh, so much so. Well, we'll talk about that after we have got our egos back into uh shape we've released the stress and the tension with a little bit of a massage i say that that is totally an analogy because if you touch me i will tense up so hard that it will resemble you being hit okay that was weird should we get into the feedback if <laughs> okay. anyone over analyzes okay. that <laughs> all right now we're doing a i've got a literal literal little instruction here that says feedback keep it punchy so that was what that yes. last bit was about or i'll punchy you <laughs> exactly um so yeah we've had one comment on the blog that's psychomedia.wordpress.com go and look at it it has pictures sometimes <laughs> uh this week it will definitely have at least one video to look at yes. possibly oh, more than you. one depending on how much i want people to look at quite unpleasant dogs anyway uh this is from listener brian um he says an episode on psychopaths and serial killers would be interesting mainly to see how it could be funny the psychopath (laughs) test was good really good and had humor throughout like the story about the prison experiment where a dozen juvenile psychopaths were given lsd and locked naked in a padded room it's absurd and funny until the results that it made them worse is revealed uh, I think you have rather answered your own question there, Brian, but thank you for the feedback. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're thinking about psychopaths. Psychopaths obviously don't really recognise when things are unpleasant or violent. Not that yeah. we like to our listeners, but seriously, Brian. Uh, he, was also, <laughs> he was also going to say that uh, we should do an episode on the psychology of seal clubbing and I think there probably is some psychology. I'm not sure which oh, research you wanted to cover. No, I, I actually, I looked this up because <laughs> um, <laughs> I was, well, yeah, no, I, I was trying to think because we have had a surprising amount of feedback on seal clubbing and I wanted to see if there was any way we could feed that into a podcast. And it turns out that seals actually really do like nightclubs. <laughs> like if you put a seal, they will, they like they dance all night, but there is kind of a major problem with like seal drug abuse. They like go to the bathrooms and you just see sne- seals snorting cocaine off toilet bowls and then like flopping around. It's terrible, really. Oh, I haven't caught up on this week's episode of Human Planet. Uh, not Human Planet. <laughs> Damn that was you, where I brain! Saw it. That was where I saw it. I mean, the problem also is, like, in Antarctic regions, you really can't find the cocaine on the snow. T- t- to be fair, like, I'm not that big on documentaries or nature shows, but HD, Frozen Planet, narwhals. <laughs> My goodness, they are great. <laughs> Presumably walruses, too. Uh, there weren't any walruses this episode, but uh, I'm, I'm sure there will be. Anyway, so, yeah, thanks for the feedback, Brian, saying that it gets better and is really entertaining. Uh, we hope that we haven't mortally offended you, but then, you know, uh, you know, I suppose you are going to now come and kill us because we've insulted your grandiose sense of ego. Sorry, Tim, someone's just knocking at the door. Hang on a second. <laughs> oh, God! <laughs> fight him! Fight him with science! 
<laughs> use use your enhancements. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, so that was feedback. Uh, yeah. Well, no, it's it not all the feedback. It was it was some feedback. Uh, we got our first listeners in the Republic of Ireland. Hooray! So that's nice. We already I'm had like Northern Irish top, top of the morning to you. Don't Ben. <laughs> I went to. I went. To, I've been to Ireland a couple of times. Been to. Uh, the Republic of Ireland with my uh, family and I've been to Northern Ireland with my friends and it seems like half the time I'm just going don't do Irish accents don't try Irish <laughs> accents because that does seem to be the compulsion of the British oh, person it- visiting I mean there's some other compulsions let's not go into that that's not funny but <laughs> the compulsion of some modern day British person does seem to be to do an Irish accent it's just like why would you I do think that? it's I think it's wherever you go if there's it, particularly in the UK if there's like a, a prevailing accent it's really hard to stop yourself accidentally slipping into it or like a really uh, insulting version of it particularly if you consume alcohol uh, I have found okay well good <laughs> you've been doing the field testing exactly so, rigorously so, so yes my final bit of feedback is not really <clears throat> feedback from our listeners except it's feedback from data from our listeners uh, oh, that's even better. I know, I love data. Uh, <laughs> Last FM, the beautiful, beautiful music statistics site that I love <laughs> so much. Like, I don't buy as much music as I used to, because if I can in any way scrubble it to Last FM, <laughs> then I feel like I own it, and it doesn't really matter. Obviously, I have to be able to listen to it. But anyway, uh, uh, I looked at the s- s- similar podcasts. Okay, my uh, phone is being annoying. Um I looked at the similar podcast. Apparently, we are similar to, uh, you know, everything you might expect. Um, mm-hmm. You know, overthinking it, monkey in my back podcast, advice, hot dog. But then also, uh, Katie Gillum and Mike Montero's Let's Make Mistakes, which is a podcast about design. Uh, right. Okay. Because apparently, <laughs> you know, well, it's because a couple of our listeners li- listen to that show as well. But it's weird because I would never thought, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a thing that we're similar to. I like the fact that we're at the stage, uh, possibly we will continue to be at the stage of a podcast whereby the number of our listeners is small enough that if one of them listens to something slightly incongruous, then it immediately gets picked up on by like uh, these sort of statistics websites. It's wonderful. Yes. Well, it's intriguing. I'm not sure how this one was derived. The uh, Directory Digital Podcast, I'd like to thank them for giving us some downloads. I'd like to not thank them for saying that if you like Psychomedia, you might like The Chris Moyles Show. I think it's a little bit more than not thanking them. <laughs> it's sort of swung back the other way. I'm such a polite active. guy that if I don't thank someone, <laughs> yeah, that's a lie. I'm we will unthank you very much. We will get the band the unthanks and we'll throw them at you. <laughs> Uh, is, that, is that the feedback? Listeners. That's all my feedback. Have you, have you heard anything? Has someone no, come yeah. up to you in real life and said something about it? Oh, actually, I'm sure one of my friends who has just listened to the first pad- podcast really, really uh, enjoyed it uh, because he's ah. finally got an MP3 player. So I was just like, listen to our show. Actually, uh, now that you come to mention it, I hadn't thought of this, but uh, my mum uh, emailed me. Uh, no, she rang me from work. Uh, <laughs> it was a Friday afternoon and she was like, so I'm in work. Um, but it's Friday afternoon and the boss isn't in. So I don't really feel like I'm just, uh, I, I deserve to be working now. So I thought I'd listen to your podcast and give it another go. But she couldn't get it to work on iTunes. Um, so yeah. I, I've looked iTunes. into that problem and I think it is a problem with her. Okay, fair enough. That is not entirely unlikely. <laughs> Sorry, mum. What, what, um, what does your mother do out of interest? What is the sort of environment where you're like, boss is gone, let's put on Psychomedia? Because I feel well, that's a market it, we should tap. It's like a wine company in an office. So um, 
okay. Yeah, I hope this is okay. She might be upset about me telling this, so we can always cut it out. Um, but anyway, uh, she <laughs> started listening to it and didn't get further than the, in her words, the crap at the beginning. Oh, <laughs> which It's nice was... to have supportive family members on this. You know, my well, brother's no, just it's... like, oh, I don't listen to your podcast because it's too long. It's fine because she was like, uh, unfortunately, I didn't get past the crap at the beginning. She is still interested to find out the non-crap. I think she may be disappointed to find that it's still quite <laughs> crap. But um, anyway, uh, so that was nice. Thank you, mum. I'm, I'm glad you're listening to it. I'm glad you tried. Um, yeah, the it's, thoughts it's, and the it, effort is what counts. Exactly. So anyway, um, if that's all the feedback, uh, what have you done this week, Tim? What have I done this week? Um, I'm trying to remember. Was it anything? So f- I got a job! Hooray! Hooray! Well, I, I did already have a job. <laughs> Take I got that a- 1%. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can't start on this too early. <laughs> We're really catching up with that thing that was big news about a month ago. Yeah, um, yeah I, I got a job in a field that actually I um, <laughs> is like part of my life plan. You know, I enjoyed my time in tourism, but it wasn't part of the kind of the goal, the, the the life I was planning to lead, you know, yes. depressingly and creepily since age 16 or something. We have quite contrasting views on ambition and the rest of it, or we used to anyway. Yeah. Um, it's worked out quite well for you, really. Yeah, it's going okay. But uh, yeah, I now work as a uh, support worker for people with cognitive difficulties. So that's things like severe autism, cerebral palsy, uh, it seems to me like it's going to be a really varied and actually quite fun job. And I had my first session this week and I learned carry a well-stocked car because you don't know when you're next going to have the chance to eat. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm going to be like taking a guy to a drumming group or going on a walking group or just helping someone with their shopping. So it's ah. really like quite a low labor, you know, way of making a positive difference to people's lives. Yeah. Uh, Ah. So I'm quite excited about that. Uh, I didn't get through to the next round of the uh, comedy competition, Mm. which is sad because I looked at the five who did get through and I'm calling them out right here, right now. (laughs) Three of you deserve to go through ahead of me. Two of you did not deserve to go through (laughs) ahead of me. No. Well, Um, Freud, you guys. (laughs) You people I don't know. They put up the the radio station. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you their faces and then if you see them, you can hate them forever. Uh, I um, <laughs> like that would ever happen. Um, <laughs> they put up some of the big laughs from the show as one of the kind of preview trailers. And mine, my opening line, I may have said this was one of them. I um, so I'm going to drop it in today's show was uh, canned laughter, just for any line that I think deserves it. <laughs> we uh, try and find the least funny joke in the entire show, preferably with a long pause after it, and then have some canned laughter. That's probably the best way of doing it. Okay, I was going to say something really mean and that I didn't mean to you then. I'll be like, okay, I'll be checking through your sections then. Well, I mean, given last week's pun-heavy podcast, that's not entirely unreasonable. Um, This week will hopefully be less pun-heavy, mainly because I've spent less time preparing for it. (laughs) You have a real life as well. Yeah, I mean, I didn't. On the subject subject of work and, like, the things that me and Tim are normally supposed to be doing with our lives... um, uh, the last week or so, I have had absolutely um, Freud all to do with my time. And then suddenly, yesterday, in the space of about five hours yesterday, I suddenly have more to do than I've had in probably about a year. Um, 
which is wow. good and fun and awesome, but also intimidating and scary and kind of annoying because there's, there's a couple of really good computer games coming out soon. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yes. Yeah, well, I that is major Skyrim time people. you're losing out on. <laughs> exactly. Um, so that was good. Uh, yes. Anyway. So, obligatory question. Have you watched a movie this week, Ben? <laughs> yes, Tim. Yes, I have. As I am now locked into an endless What, what happens cycle. if you haven't watched a movie? What happens if you've been working too hard? Does, does the podcast, like, break? Do you know me? <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I've sometimes wondered. I had to fill in a form that I was meant to have filled in, like, five weeks ago. And I, have, and I missed the deadline for it because it was in the introduction pack for my default and I assumed arrogantly that I knew everything there was to know. Uh, turns out I needed to fill in like a form after my first meeting with my supervisor, which the first question they ask you is, um, what are your agreed working hours and holiday time? And I was like, I mean, I know so, that there are some people in labs who have like nine till five lab hours, but social psychology is definitely not one of those labs. Um, so I emailed my supervisor uh, and asked him, and he, he replied with, um, excuse my French, but this is such BS. <laughs> if you want to work nine till five, be a banker. If you don't, I, I, d- I think it's highly unlikely that you will either overwork or underwork. <laughs> yeah, sorry. We're going to have to look up some more psycho uh, analysts if we're going to keep Freuding and Younging like this. We are. Um, anyway, so yes, I did watch a film this week. I watched Thor, uh, which is... I saw it in the cinema when it came out, and I saw it again. You Thor Thor. I Thor Thor. Uh, Sorry, it's uh, the obvious joke. And I got a little bit Thor. Um, but anyway, uh, it's really good. It's it's one of my... Well, yeah, it probably is one of my favourite films, just because I'm obsessed with that kind of thing anyway. Um, it, it Main highlights involve Anthony Hopkins riding an eight-legged horse, uh, which is great. <laughs> for the, like, yeah, the, okay, that's pretty epic. For the Norse mythology nerd, seeing Slepnir in a film is amazing. But... The fact that they include that makes you wish that they include all the other like minor anachronisms of Norse mythology. So I was deeply upset that they didn't have Ratatosk, the world squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I was talking on... I, it wasn't really feedback. I was talking on Twitter uh, about with uh, someone who doesn't have an internet connection. So we couldn't, you know, chat and whatever, work on our secret project, mm. secret evil project together. So I was just like, squaw! <laughs> and someone pointed out to me that the way I'd written Squire, you could just put an L on the end. So then I was like, ooh, a squirrel with the face of Squire. <laughs> right. Well, that's going in this week's show notes. Um, so, yeah. Oh, yeah, you can do that. Okay, gladly. Um, uh, yeah, so I watched Thought. It was great. It was awesome. Um, not much to say about that at a psychological level, um, except for all the massive daddy issues involved. Um, what else I did this week was we had a Halloween party for my, my new house. And obviously, Halloween party has to be a costume party. It went really well. It was really fun. Um, but because of all the, the many and various costumes that uh, turned up, I, I was sort of wondering about what I could say about this on the podcast. And I came across an article, um, which was an interview with a guy called John Sula, who is a researcher at Rider University in New Jersey. And it was an article about what your Halloween costume says about you at a psychological level. Um, I really need to get a buzzer that just says, who funded that? <laughs> yes. Uh, I don't know who funded that. Um, John Suler actually does the majority of work, is his work on cyberspace. He calls himself a cyber psychologist, which sounds much cooler than it is. And actually, I think it's a term that would be better 
given to someone <laughs> else that we're going to talk about this podcast. Yes. We'll see later. However, um, basically, uh, he, he reckons that Halloween costumes uh, are kind of cognitive wish fulfillment. There would there were definite like uh, Freudian undertones in this oh, uh, in this article, um, and he was saying like it, it either it's kind kind of converse. It either allows you to express characteristics which you don't feel are like you. So uh, he suggests that um, people who are kind of repressed might dress sluttily at Halloween. I mean, I, I would disagree with that. I think people who are slutty dress sluttily at Halloween, but then I hadn't written a book about a tangentially related topic, so perhaps I shouldn't comment on it. Um, I'm sure that actually it's like uh, you put in the uh, information and it's actually a big multiple regression. Probably. Most and the number are. of factors leading to this, uh, once you've defined sluttiness, which I think is a big issue, yeah. um, that I think we need to set up a journal to. <laughs> <laughs> the, journal of the New England the- Journal of Sluttiness Studies. <laughs> Uh, so many submissions. Um, anyway, so th- I mean, this he gave like a list of like different kinds of costume and what they can say about you. Um, and so I tried to tried to analyze my costume, which was a cowboy, um, complete with like a-, a sheriff badge, a waistcoat, cowboy boots, and the smallest pair of toy guns you have ever seen. So, <laughs> I mean, leaving aside the fact it's that having a bit of a contrast from last year, <laughs> where it was the biggest set of toy guns I think I've ever seen. Well, I, I like to put aside the fact that tiny guns clearly indicate that I have nothing to compensate for and doubly lead aside the fact that they were in fact bought for me by my girlfriend. Um, the, the cowboy didn't actually seem to be covered by any of the, of Sula's costume categories. I mean, he talked about, uh, celebrities, which I guess cowboys sort of are, but he didn't really talk about TV, uh, characters as such. He reckoned that celebrities are, a way of demonstrating how kind of up to speed you are with social events. So like if you were, go- if you went to a party as Kim Kardashian, it might indicate that you admire charity work for struggling divorce lawyers. <laughs> um, and then he also talks about like comic book characters, powerful characters and sexy characters, all of which could have applied to me, obviously. Um, but I think he needs to add another category of like unimaginative and slightly boring characters <laughs> for those who spend the entire day carving pumpkins and don't have time for anything else. Right. Um, um, can I can I ask a couple yeah, of questions? Certainly. Uh, one, what was girlfriend name removed uh, dressed as? Because I couldn't figure it out. It was pretty awesome, actually. She had a house on her head. Yeah, she went. She as the little like the little prince's planet or something. <laughs> that would have been awesome too. She, uh, she went as the wicked witch of the east from uh, Wizard of Oz, which involved dressing up as a witch, but instead of having a witch's hat, having a small cardboard cutout house on a headband, um, which is kind of awesome and okay that does make total sense once it is explained yes <laughs> uh, but second thing i was kind of scared by your beard ah uh, yes um I, I i'm not participating in movember because when i grow a, a mustache it looks deeply deeply creepy um but uh, i have i have been growing my winter beard for some time now um and it was it yeah it was pretty it was it was in its peak state for that halloween party uh, it has subsequently receded somewhat um, under the influence of a a razor, um, <laughs> as opposed to man. That's the worst one to be driving under, really. Isn't it? <laughs> driving under the influence of a razor. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, because I I just I felt it was unfair. It was very Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, there was, was there was a lot of beard about. I was thinking about the inequality of it. You know, <laughs> that one percent of the face had ninety nine percent of the hair. <laughs> 
Which is not really true in your case, oh, because the hair is pretty much distributed. Almost universally. <laughs> You're a hair communist. I am. Which kind of... You filthy red. <laughs> I'm proud of that. <laughs> uh, maybe that will be the place for the candle after. Um, <laughs> uh, cool. Do we now have a new insult for each <laughs> Can it, Swan? Um, anyway, the other thing that... So th- there is a point to this sort of rambling thing about costumes. As I said, the other thing that John Sula studies is online avatars. Um, and the, a lot of the arguments he puts forward for what your costume says about you also apply to what your avatar says about you. Um, which kind of leads me to another thing that we've both done this week, which is playing DC Universe Online, uh, which, for those of you that don't know, is um, a computer game in which you and your friends create your own custom superhero or supervillain and essentially run around doing minor chores while the real superheroes <laughs> like Superman just like things with a hammer. <laughs> kick back with their feet up. Um, yeah, it is true. Well, apart from I got to the other point today, and Nightwing, uh, one of the later incarnations of uh, the uh, Dick Grayson Robin, um, says hi. I think you need some help. It's like no, I was fine. <laughs> Leave me alone, Nightwing. Uh, yeah. So anyway, we've been playing a lot of that now. John Sula, if you're listening, um, my character in DC Universe is called Nitro Cougar. He's a green and yellow suited, green and yellow spandex suited, anthropomorphic fetish suited, fetish suited anthropomorphic cougar who dispenses justice through the power of exploding. <laughs> Analyze that. <laughs> Whereas mine is a uh, black woman who wears lots of uh, tasteful uh, costumes, which are hard to find in a superhero game, <laughs> has an average normal woman's physique and um, a giant hammer, or currently an axe, but usually a hammer. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I, we are going to do that study actually probably in a later episode because it just offers lots of opportunities for Ben to question why I always play as a woman. Which does need a lot of questioning. Anyway, this leads me to this week's belaboured segue. Um, super- Another belaboured segue. Yeah, so superheroes are in films and they often fight against like evil mad scientists, right? And this week's topic, right, is like crazy psychology from films that turns out to be true brackets, evil mad scientists, close brackets. So this could conceivably lead to my first study. Which, right, no, no, oh. no, not doing that. If we try and walk over that segue, we will fall to our deaths. <laughs> it is a rickety segue. And I am saying on behalf of the podcast health and safety team <laughs> that you are not allowed to go over it. You've okay, changed. I'm gonna I'm gonna quickly build another one. Okay, so one thing I did do this week was I watched the film Human Nature, the first collaboration between Michelle Gondry and Charlie Kaufman, which is all about experimenting on mice and humans to teach them table manners. Absolutely hilarious film. Features Reese Evans in possibly his best performance that I've seen. Uh, and Tim Robbins, who I haven't seen in that much, apart from obviously the Shawshank Redemption, doing quite a good job of being really, really neurotic. Yeah. Um, also, Miranda Otto is fakely French for no <laughs> adequately explored reason. <laughs> Couldn't she uh, be like yeah. actually New Zealandish? Uh, I think she's Australian. Yeah. Don't make that mistake. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Miranda Otto. Listeners, we cannot afford to do that. <laughs> They're like a thousand miles apart and she culturally was... very not that different. Anyway, uh, <laughs> and so obviously their second collaboration was the incredible Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And the first study we're going to talk about is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, the true story. Oh my See? God. That, that, you're right. That was a significantly better segue. Exactly. <clears throat> See? <clears throat> 
So uh, I'm going to start by uh, reading the uh, the quotation that inspired the film's title from uh, Alexander Pope's Eloisa to Abelard. How happy is the blameless Vestal's lot, the world forgetting by the world forgot, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, each prayer accepted and each witch resigned. So yeah, that's in uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Wow, this podcast just like, got like 18% deeper. <laughs> uh, Insert standard Inception joke. Don't talk to me about Inception. I'm just thinking about Killian Murphy's eyes now. <laughs> well, you're out of uh, out of commission for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> exactly. You still about needing to go deeper. You look into those, you're in limbo forever. Um <laughs> This is getting all weird again. Yeah. Then I started as soon as I think about Killian Murphy, I think about Christian Camargo, um, and he's in uh, the new Twilight films. I realise yeah. that I may just watch them because he's in them. I'm not sure that's a healthy reason to do anything. <laughs> also, so uh, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, the study. Okay, yes, this uh, this isn't about the dreaminess or otherwise of any of the uh, characters. Obviously, one of the key elements of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, if you haven't seen it, and I don't think it's too much of a spoiler, I'm sure it turns up because the thing is so mixed chronology, is that you can erase a memory or a set of memories to get rid of a person or a troubling uh, relationship. Now, we're talking about the unbelievable mad science that does turn up in films. I haven't stopped Ben from the overall topic, sadly. I'll try and come up with something a bit punchier. Um, not that sort of punchy. Um, we've actually learned that this is, uh, to an extent, possible. We were taught this uh, back in the day uh, at university, and I haven't been able to find the, that particular research because I found some better research. <laughs> now, I'm just going to quickly go through the history of attempting to erase memory, because <laughs> apparently we've tried lots of different ways. Um, there's some not-so-funny evidence of memory loss following electroconvulsive therapy, and the uh, American Psychological Association says that the memory almost always comes back. Um, certainly the modern forms that have been refined to be the safest possible procedure but then again a lot of that is based on research by larry squire oh no <laughs> let, let me let me let me describe the squire research squire has a paper where he discovers that poorly done ect led to 30 years of amnesia you know he, they person lost 30 years of their life uh but he says it's probably just six months either way, usually. It's like, okay, I'd like to know how you made that leak, Professor Squire, <laughs> because that sounds a bit weird. Um, but yeah. Man, that Larry Squire, he's nuts. <laughs> yep. Um, Canned laughter. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, I'd forgotten about the squirrels thing. Sorry. I would have laughed if I'd been able to piece together the joke. I was busy remembering the uh, traumatic time that i had because i almost got involved in a different sort of um, memory prevention uh study with uh, emily holmes at the epact team which is the experimental psychopathology and cognitive therapy you might have heard of uh, emily holmes she made it onto the bbc news a couple of years ago because she discovered that playing tetris immediately after a traumatic incident greatly reduces the incident of post-traumatic stress disorder Wow, that's kind of cool. So yeah, maybe we can put that in the video games episode. But yeah, I almost <laughs> I almost took a research project in her department until we discovered how much hard work it would be, uh, mm. and it would probably destroy the rest of our degree, and that the research would involve showing like brutal mutilation films to our close friends. Yeah, it's they, valuable, they that valuable research that I am glad I didn't do myself. <laughs> But yeah, so again, that was, it's not especially good at erasing memories. It just kind of prevents them getting in as strongly. 
Um, So, you know, the work with electricity uh, got some way, but it was quite tricky. Rutenberg and Holtzman in 1973, they electrically stimulated the substantia nigra of a rat, um, specifically the pars compactor. If you're interested, go look up the difference between the pars compactor and the pars reticulata, because (laughs) you love Latin. Um, (laughs) The pars compactor governs movement and stimulus response, and it's strongly implicated in addiction. Uh, ah. But in terms with, I think, the stimulus response thing, if you stick an electrode in there and electrify it either at the time or shortly after learning a task, then it prevents it being learnt. But that's not an especially practical way of raising memory, because one, you have to put an electrode in a tough-to-get-to part of the brain. Hmm. Two, you have to make sure that the electricity operates when the memory is being formed, and this is kind of the recurring problem. And uh, three, there's some evidence that stimulating that area is hedonic to the point of being more addictive than cocaine or heroin. Oh, great. I knew that there was going to be a kind of a, a big one to, to round off that three. <laughs> yeah, definitely a bad idea. It comes up in an episode of House uh, for those who are interested in Hugh Laurie. Um, actually, yeah. there's been plenty of sci-fi written about the opposite thing. Uh, Dan Simmons, one of my favourite sci-fi authors, has got a new book out of the reverse of this, that if you could restore memory, that it would be like an addictive drug and you'd spend your whole life just reliving the good times instead of trying to live on. Um, oh. So, yeah, interesting concept. Um, so, okay, so it's not very targeted, it's not very practical, and it's dangerously addictive. Uh, Beck and Rankin in 1995 thought, what about heat shock? When you raise a cell's heat, that it releases all sorts of new chemicals that it doesn't normally uh, release. Well, they tried it on a uh, species called the Canorhabditis elegans. Ah, that old that old fella. Uh, yes. Let's, actually, no, before you tell me what it is, can I try and guess what kind of animal that is? Uh, sure, although I think I did tell you earlier in the week. Well, I think I possibly linked you the study, but I can't remember... <laughs> If I actually looked at it, I would imagine that that's a nematode worm. <laughs> I'm sorry. I realized that I really undermined the joke you were making there. And for that, I apologize. <laughs> I'll put in some canned laughter. Make it seem like it was much better than it was. And laughter makes everything okay. Uh, the, only, the only reason I mentioned that is because nematode worms are cool and they're studied by um, lots of things. What did you say it was cool again? The Canorhabditis elegans. Apparently, ah, one is guy it, discovered they were useful I, and taught his whole grad student set how to use them. And so almost all the published research is from one particular guy's set of grad students. Are you sure it's not... S- oh, no, yeah, it's it's Cenorhabditis is how it's actually pronounced. And I can tell you about Cenorhabditis. Oh, really? um, because I study them as part of my uh, genomics uh, module. Cenorhabditis, the reason that they're used by so much uh, genetics research is because they were the first and possibly thus far the only animal where the entire map of its nervous system is known and its entire genome has been mapped. So it's, they have a very simple nervous system. I think it's like only maybe 100 neurons. I, think I read number 300, but okay. you know exactly um, and really well and understand it. Yeah. It's a bit more complicated than the aplysia. Yeah. And so they, what you can do is you can find direct links between a given gene, of which they don't have very many, and a given neuron, of which they don't have very many. Um, and they also exhibit a number of... The, the problem with them, apparently, is that they don't actually do very much as an right. animal, so there isn't much behavioural stuff you can do. I read apparently, that they could be frozen and thawed and they'd still be alive. 
Well, that's that's cool, but it's not exactly behavior. Exactly. That's, this that's is like, the thing. It's like any animal that can do that probably doesn't have that interesting behavior. <laughs> apparently, the, the main behavioral pattern that is studied is is feeding um, because they, they, they're kind of little wiggly, wormy things that tend to hang around in like clumps together. And apparently, sometimes... They feed in groups, right. and like if there's some food, they'll all go towards it. And sometimes they feed separately, and they kind of disperse. And that's pretty much the only kind of behavioral thing that they do. Right. So using them to test memory, kind of difficult to generalize from. You know, <laughs> we talk about, I'm going to talk about it later and be angry about it, about generalizing and such. But um, also, they didn't use anything genetic. They just heated it up a bit. And heat does prevent people <laughs> learning things um certainly beyond a, beyond certain points it definitely does <laughs> yeah i'm but... on fire i'm finding this iq test really difficult <laughs> i don't know we don't know that it wouldn't improve performance because no one's experimentally tested it that's how psychology works right? lab. um but yeah basically um you know it's difficult and dangerous to administer heat shock to a hu- heat heat shock to a human and once again the trouble is that we we can't we're looking to erase memories that have already been formed you know the only way you could use these previous methods is if you um knew that this memory was going to be bad and then electrified slash heated up or whatever right then not really practical but don't worry science has found a way uh it's based on the theory of memory consolidation a phenomenon first described by the Roman rhetoric that's a hard word, the Roman teacher of rhetoric, Quintilian. Uh, Quintilian, Alexander Pope, who we've already had a quotation from, so I thought I'd have another one, said of Quintilian, in grave Quintilian's copious works we find the justest rules and clearest method joined. Wow. So uh, My guy sucked at rhyme. <laughs> I imagine it's because our pronunciation has changed. Um, Quintilian noted that the curious fact that the interval of a single night will greatly increase the strength of the memory. And we'll talk about the role of dreams in that some other time. But the point is, uh, memory gets engaged in the uh, heterogeneous memory systems of the medial temporal lobe first. (laughs) But then what happens afterwards is it gets consolidated into more stable areas distributed throughout the brain. That's that's interesting, actually. Uh, that quote speaks directly to uh, yours and my preferred style of revising um, during our exam periods, oh, which yeah. was if you got if we got stuck on any particular topic, we would like glare at the article for about an hour whilst really tired before bed, not be able to understand it, and then just fall asleep. And more often than not, we would wake up in the morning and suddenly it would all be made clear. Yeah, the, and we, we did this on a number of occasions. We would kind of Morecambe and Wising it there. <laughs> well, yeah, we we independently yes. discovered <laughs> there this we wonderful, go. wonderful effect. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and so the reason that hippocampus damage causes this recent retrograde amnesia, you know, if you get hippocampus mm. damage, you'll lose the last year, but the further back stuff is much more likely to be preserved. Yeah, um, like it's it especially true for semantic memory because episodic memory is more complicated and so more needs to kind of be hippocampally yeah. mediated. All of this is very squiry territory. So we include a certain amount of caveats. There are contradictory evidence about how consolidation quite works and what the timeline is. But mm. for the purposes of this research, the researcher assumed that consolidation is mostly true. Mm. Um, but then 
the interesting stage that this researcher who I'm going to talk about uh, is interested in is not the laying down and consolidation of memories, but what happens when we actually retrieve them. And uh-huh. the theory actually suggests that memories become fluid again. They get taken back, as it were, to the hippocampus and become active and engaged. Ah. Uh, and so what they expected was maybe if you could find a way of disrupting it, just like in Eternal Sunshine, you have to think of the things, uh, or mm. at least you visually experience them, uh, that might be how you erase them. Bring them to mind, and then they get wiped. So uh, a guy called Joe Tsien, um, which is a hard one to pronounce, uh, mm. and a team in 2008 had a look at doing this in mice. Now, I'd like to talk about mice briefly. We've talked about them before. I recently heard a trailer for the Jeff Lloyd Hometime Show on Absolute Radio. Um, and they've got on this trailer a dis- discussion of scientists getting rid of wrinkles in mice. And the whole team have no idea why they would do it in mice. And now I don't normally get that annoyed about scientific ignorance, especially outside of the you know, unholy meeting of politics and statistics, which is damned <laughs> lies plus damned lies. Um, you know, the abuse of statistics, because apparently yeah. that's something I care about. But this one really vexed me because it wasn't just like they were like, oh, that's a bit funny. It was just like, why would they do it in mice? I have absolutely no idea. Um, and the reason you do it in mice is because you can't do things in humans. <laughs> Let's inject your face with neurotoxin to see if it works. Um, you know, um, I mean, there are also, I mean, there is a buried in that uh, that kind of cauldron of ignorance. There is a kind of a tasty crouton of reasonable question, um, which is why specifically do genetics researchers use mice? Yes, and as opposed to any other animal. Reason is um, that mice are genetically pliable, which is a yeah, really or, disgusting phrase that I made up while writing this. <laughs> now, I don't, I don't know how much of this you were planning to go into in detail, but it's also something that uh i've studied a bit with this genomics course that i I seem to keep coming back to before yeah basically yeah mice mice are uh easy to manipulate genetically difficult to get to do anything useful in a behavioral context because they're like tiny prima donnas whereas rats are really awesome for uh for doing research on they're really keen and get involved but um have like complex and interesting Interesting genomes, probably why they're more intelligent. Um, oh yeah, those two things might be linked. I was wondering why bit. we couldn't like work out things. I mean, it's, it's a re- it's a really crass and over like overstatement. You but mouse it's racist. Not beyond, not beyond the realms of possibility. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, Cien is a key figure in the genetic mm. uh, study of mice and mice memory. Mostly yes. involves looking very closely at a particular receptor called the NMDA glutamate receptor mm-hmm. we're not going to go into all the biochemistry of this because it's quite boring basically when your brain makes a positive connection that when one thing goes the other thing wants to go it uses this chemical called glutamate like 95 percent of the time mm-hmm. and the just the kind of connection the switch is called the AMPA receptor and then the dial that changes the strength of the switch is the nmda receptor mm. i think that's 
that's a pretty quick succinct. way of doing it. I, I would have probably gone into much more detail, but that's probably a bad thing. So Biochemistry gets a bit confusing, but basically in the brain, mm. it's like the key one. And I was surprised because I was like, I've heard of some neurotransmitters and it's like, yeah, those are quite minor. Glutamate, yeah. that's the big deal. Oh yeah, very much so. Uh, Particularly in this domain, I think. Oh yeah, basic learning. So uh, yes, so Cien garnered international acclaim by making a smart mouse called Doogie, I assume after Doogie <laughs> Hauser, um, in which a particular subunit of this receptor is overexpressed. Um, mm. Now, the particular subunit is called NR2B, and it is much higher in younger brains. Um, ah, it leaves ah. the communication channels between brain cells, I assume that means synapses, open longer. And that's why young people learn things faster than older adults. So mm. he made a mouse that was preternaturally smart, and hence Doogie Hauser. Um, mm. I thought that was brilliant, especially because a lot of this stuff, CN, it seems like, oh, if only we could do that in humans. Yeah, I mean, there, there's been a lot of, uh, had I known you were going to be talking about this, or had I bothered to read your pre-notes, um, I would have actually looked at the names of some of these studies. But there has been a lot of research involved it in kind of genetic manipulation of these particular receptors and their subtypes, and the effect it has on memory. So one of the particularly cool things that they've done is you can you can knock out particular receptors with genetic manipulation so that the mouse doesn't express it. Or in this case with CN, you can cause hyper-expression of it. Yeah. Um, what you can also do is call what's called a, a genetic rescue, which is where uh, in the genome of the embryo, you, uh, you knock out the gene. So the mouse you know, is born and its early development is... Uh, done without say this uh the nmda sub receptor and so it has like memory deficits and then later in its life you can inject a, a chemical which kind of reactivates the the receptor so suddenly it has uh, having kind of developed without it it's suddenly awash with um the the kind of neural substrates it needs and then you can see what it does and you can find that you can actually kind of rescue some degree of memory function um yeah which, which is, is kind pretty of cool. amazing i mean the genetic manipulation in this actual eternal sunshine study is v in a way very complicated but mm. once you've explained it genuinely brilliant basically um the receptors in our head aren't just like one chemical goes and it does a thing the whole body works when in signaling it sets off this cascade of chemicals it's a mousetrap kind of style thing fittingly because yes. we're talking about mice uh, so mm. a key part of the nmda cascade as it's called is a protein called the alpha isoform of calcium or calmodulin dependent kinase 2 which i'm going to call <laughs> alpha camke yep. for uh simplicity uh, the way to pronounce it is alpha camke 2 alpha camke 2 I think. Okay, good. <laughs> well, anyway. Um, You're CN... a geneticist in the audience, write in and tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you've had your ability to write knocked out <laughs> protein in, you know, the uh, motor area. Anyway, yeah. Um, so Cien created a mouse where he could control how much of the alpha cam K2 um, was released. Now, the way he did this uh -huh. was that there are... Um, proteins obviously they have their own unique shape the way they work is there are this immensely kind of complicated folded chain um and what he did was he created a version of alpha kamki 2 um which had a slightly bigger hole in one bit 
<laughs> than normal and then created a tiny molecule that would fit in there and when it fitted in the, the hole that he'd enlarged in the modified alpha cam k2 it would deactivate that protein that is so cool so <laughs> he genetically modified a mouse that pr- produced a weird version one for its normal one mm-hmm. and then if he plugged in his drug it would totally wipe out the function so he could control whether this chemical was there or not reversibly with a drug and if he's on the drug then it doesn't work and if he, you take him off the drug like almost instantly he gets to use it again i'm just like that's brilliant you know i think oh genetically modified oh you change it so he doesn't have this protein or something the knockout one but this is really subtle and brilliant i think yeah we should actually come to think of it we should do a whole episode on the awesomeness that you can find in uh well my module was called post genomic psychology which means psychology after the you know mapping of the human genome okay i was Um, wondering what that meant uh and there are some ridiculously cool things you can do with it something called optogenetics which is where you turn on particular parts of the brain using uh lasers essentially light uh which is really really awesome um so i'm just making a little note (laughs) carry on tim (laughs) okay now in terms of the um, memory testing that they gave these mice then to see whether they could affect... They knew it was involved in the memory system. They weren't quite sure how. Um, they gave three different types of test to the mice to prove it wasn't just one type of test. And these three different types of tests involve different neuronal circuits. That some are more amygdala ones and some are more hippocampal ones. You know, the rest of it. Now, the uh, genetically modified mice actually had an excess of alpha cam k2 um in general unless you gave them the drug to calm it down um and they found that um a uh, excess of alpha cam k2 impaired the retrieval of memory so they were like okay that's fine we found that having too much of this particular chemical causes problems in memory they made sure that it was the retrieval phase only that had the impact because their time control was so precise that they could give them the antidote when they were learning and they could give them the antidote just after they'd learnt, and then they could take the antidote away when they were trying to remember it and Mm. that was the only time that it showed the memory problem right so if you spiked it up during the learning and not during the retrieval they were fine and if you spiked it up just after the learning but before they were actually having to retrieve it fine Uh So, but if you, so it was just during the re- retrieval yeah. that uh, yeah. it was sort of significant. One thing which, I really loved about this study yeah. is just how precise they made it. Mm. Because a lot of studies, they go, oh, well, I found this. It's like, yeah, but you could explain it this other way. And mm. CN has got into the good habit of going, right, let's exclude all the alternatives as best possible. And so if I follow you correctly, the idea that, it, oh, that uh, manipulating these kind of chemical substrates of memory it links directly back to what you're saying about consolidation, where... The idea is that when you're recalling a memory, it becomes sort of reactivated um, and susceptible to influence. So if it's when the mouse is having to try and recall what it's learned and then you suddenly um, mess up its neuroreceptors, then that that potentially can remove the memory. Is that Um, what they were going for? Well, let me carry on because they realize at this point, uh, well, firstly, that it might be short term memory because they're doing these tasks. Well, shortish term. I mean, those terms don't have that much meaning in a way. Uh, Mm. They did it only with an hour gap. So the first thing they checked was, does it go exactly the same way with a month gap? And it does. Mm-hmm. 
it will only have an impact during the retrieval phase. But if you've taught them something a month ago and you test them on it, because mice can remember that long, um, mm. then again, it will only show impairment on the re- remembering if you give them the spike in the Alpha Cam K2 during the retrieval. Yeah. Um, so they've proven that it's over the different timescales of memory. And what they wanted to check now is, is it disruption or deletion? Because, you know, in terms of the retrieval, ah, yes. is it getting in the way of it just coming back to mind? And yeah. so as soon as you then reduce the levels of the Alpha Cam K2, they're just like, oh, yeah, I remember it. Or is the presence of Alpha Cam K2, when you try and retrieve it, you try and bring it to mind, it gets deleted. Yeah. So it's quite a simple one to test. You do two recall tests. The first one, you let there be an excess of Alpha Cam K2. And the second mm. one, you give them the drug so they don't have it. And what happened was they failed on the second test, despite the fact they'd gone back to normal Alpha Cam K2 levels. That so, is brilliant. by elevating the level of Alpha Cam K2 during recall, that memory was deleted. And when they stretched the time between the tests to see if it was just a bit too much Alpha Cam K2 still in the system, then the same effect was observed. The memory eraser was permanent. Excellent. And oh. then they tested it with another thing to go, oh, well, maybe you've just deleted all of the memories that they've recently learnt. Oh, no, brilliant. <laughs> it only applies to the one test. If you try and do them like a novel object recognition, does the mouse look surprised when you show it something that you've, it's already seen? Well, if you've deleted the memory of that object, they do show surprise. But when you give them a like, thing that they've associated with fear, they still jump because you haven't deleted all memories from that time period. You've deleted that memory. That is an awesome study. You know, the memory... So good. They even got the time course of the memory erasure. Memory erasure takes two to three minutes, and it starts 30 seconds to one minute after retrieval if there is an excess of Alpha Cam K2. Is this one of those studies, uh, you come across them occasionally where you're, you're reading it, and you're like, okay, there has to be something wrong here. Like, it, it might not be completely, like, destroying the entire base of the experiment, but they must have missed something. There must be some minor problem with it because it seems it seems kind of too good to be true in a way because that i mean that is by your description that is an sort of like paragon of experimental design in terms of how they've gone about testing all possible avenues so well done cn yeah i i cannot see a a kind of an error in it they think that in the brain it's because of uh, abnormal long-term depression. Basically, the way the consolidation works is it turns up the right dials on the strength of connections between neurons. Right. And long-term depression is when you reduce that strength again, when you've learned something new that changes that. So, you, mm. I mean, if you want to make it a really gross analogy, you've learned like a stereotype association, and then you learn that actually it's slightly different and you need to turn that back down again. And what they yeah. think has happened is that it's turned back down from 11 to 0 instead of, oh, we've turned it down to ele- from 11 to 9. Okay. Um, they don't think that there can be a drug that activates alpha-cam K2. Mm. But what they do think is that somewhere in that whole cascade is, you know, because obviously alpha-cam K2 doesn't just do one thing. It's not how proteins work. They set off different chains that you could look at the chain and find one that could be drug-targeted. So they do believe that this is a real thing that we could be doing for people with post-traumatic stress and the rest of it. Genuinely applying a memory erasure drug where it says, remember this traumatic thing that happened. Boom, drug in for the time. You know, don't think about anything else. Yeah. Erased. Take the drug out. And thus, eternal uh, sunshine of the spotless mind. Correct. That is really cool. I know. How (laughs) awesome is that? 
That is really awesome. Um, I, I'm hoping that this week is going to turn out to be like an awesome studies week. I think I think so. Um, would you like me to tell you something else awesome? <laughs> is that what your next study? Yes. Uh, um, right. So, Doctor Cyborg. Um, so you know how, like I said, the cyborg monkeys were like Doctor P- Octopus if he was a peanut-loving monkey. Well, a man called Kevin Warwick is like Doctor P- Octopus if he was a human neuroscientist with undisclosed views on peanuts. So <laughs> he's pretty much Doctor Octopus. Um, D- Kevin Warwick uh, is the chair in cybernetics at Reading University, which was a random tangential link. But my dad went to university. Um, he has been involved in a whole mess of projects. Now, I you, you might have heard about him maybe for all of these, but maybe for like one or two of these um, things that he's done. They are all amazing and crazy and wonderful. So he's been involved in work on artificial intelligence. He is uh, involved in the creation of something called Morgui or Morgui, which uh, spelled M-O-R-G-U-I, which is a robotic skull. Uh, It sits in the department and it has five sensory inputs, vision, sound, infrared, ultrasound, and radar. Uh, If you see a picture of it, it looks like a scary, angry, like Terminator skull. Okay, so rendered not like in like Murray the skull from s- Monkey Island. No, like swish white plastic, and basically they used it to investigate sense data function. Um, the interesting thing about it is, according to the Wikipedia page, this uh, skull has been X-rated by the University of Reading Research and Ethics Committee, meaning that anyone under the age of eighteen who wishes to interact with the robot must obtain a priori parental approval. Now. I, this is intriguing because on the Wikipedia page, it cryptically refers to the reason for this being its image storage capabilities, which immediately made th- me think, did they plug it into the internet and is it there full of porn? Or- no, that's not how it works. It's to do with child protection laws and who you're allowed to take photographs or videos of. Well, yeah. Okay. So my second thought was, okay, no, it's got to be the x-ray vision and like radar and etc. Um or possibly see that it can speak and does so in a foul-mouthed way. But I was thinking that, actually. That would be best. But the weird thing is, there was a Guardian article um, about this uh, where they interviewed um, uh, Dr. or Professor Warwick. I really should have found that out. Um, and he said that it was just because the skull was too scary. <laughs> Which makes me think that that was him. Like, it's a, it's a newspaper article. He was being guarded. He didn't want to say, yeah, so if kids want to come and play with the skull and they need parental approval because it takes pictures of them, kind of thing. Yeah, you don't want to sound like a creepy guy when you're talking to a national newspaper. If I've learned anything <laughs> from the last week going to college, <laughs> Oxford, I have learned that this is very much. Shall we not discuss that on the record? Let's, let's for not. the sake of our friends. Yes. Um, so that was one cool thing you did. The second cool thing you did of many was something called Gershwin. This is a computer algorithm, uh, a genetic computer algorithm. So based on like genetic um, programming, um, designed to create the perfect pop song. By <laughs> I've listen- heard of this. You might have done, yeah, by listening to existing pop songs. Um, so it's essentially, it's a cold, calculating, unfeeling robot that mindlessly absorbs the ideas of others to generate unoriginal pop songs with little or no artistic merit. I thought there was something slightly off about the Black Eyed Peas. 
Okay, I was interested to who it was going to be. Well, uh, my money was on Lady Gaga. So, well, no, I quite like Lady Gaga. Anyway, um, listeners. Yeah, but this doesn't mean that she hasn't cynically created this pop machine. Um, so the, the point of this is, listeners, please feel free to adapt that joke to insult your own least favourite recording artist. Um, unfortunately, it does require quite a lengthy setup in which you explain who Kevin Warwick is, but I think <laughs> this is a good thing. Um, I suggest on the YouTube comment section for, I don't know, like Britney's latest travesty, you link his Wikipedia page. That's probably the quickest thing. <laughs> um, so, uh, he invented this thing called Gershwin. That's his second cool thing. Um, but, uh, oh yeah, the the mi- third minor thing I wanted to mention before I talk about Project Cyborg, which is what he's probably most famous for, is he apparently presided over the first ever recorded robot suicide, <laughs> which shouldn't be as funny as it is. Um, I'm kind of horrified, but mostly intrigued. Yeah, so I, I couldn't find much more about this because it's it's referenced as being in his book called I, Cyborg, which I now very much want to get and read, but haven't had time to for this podcast. I get the impression that it was um, one of the robots they designed for, like, um, sort of topographic exploration of an area and, like, working its way around an environment. And apparently one robot got so confused and upset by its environment and realized that it wasn't able to get out that it committed suicide. Now, that was in inverted commas, and I'm not quite sure what committed suicide means in the context. But I Yeah, because be if you ram yourself again and again into a wall because you think that you're trying to get through it mm. and then you break, I wouldn't consider that suicide. No, but... Uh, it's interesting. Interesting, right? interesting. Nonetheless, turns out Kevin Warwick, you are a professor. Well done. This is <laughs> pro- probably suggested by the fact that you are the chair in cybernetics, which really <laughs> is it a cybernetic chair? Well, you say that, but apparently <laughs> Kevin Warwick is responsible for designing uh, Jimmy Savile's chair on Jim Will Fix It, which apparently is like a robot chair. Oh right. Um, so, uh, do you reckon that that now contains the like stored memory essence of oh, Sir Jimmy? Really weird. Um, anyway, I wanted Robo Zombie Jimmy Savile. I didn't put that in my notes because it frightened me to my very <laughs> core. Um, so I'm going to move on to talking about, in my opinion, the most awesome thing that he has done, which is called Project Cyborg, and this was an attempt to develop the possibility of human. Uh, cyber augmentations basically um, and he used himself as the test subject for this which is a very noble thing to do given what he was doing was implanting like microchips into his arms and it you know it's clearly only been done with monkeys um, so the first step with this research was that he implanted like a, a very simple radio frequency transmitter um, subcutaneously in his arm and all this did was like emit a, a fairly standard frequency which allowed him to like turn on lights and open doors when he was near them um which, and so this was just like great. yeah it's kind of it's kind of cool like every door is an automatic door um but it was just a, as a means of like testing transmission of information through his skin um step two is the exciting one this was where they got a hundred electrode array and they implanted it directly into the median nerve in his arm uh, so the the electrodes interface directly with it, just as they did in, well, kind of similar to the way they did in the motor cortex in the monkeys. So there was the, the small microchip in his arm, which then interfaced with uh, an external kind of gauntlet, which did all the processing and provided the output. Um, and they're, they're using this kind of interface device, 
which also, I should point out, it not only did it record outgoing signals from the nerve, but it also provided sensory feedback. So mm-hmm. he was able to receive signals into the microchip, which he would then feel as touch sensation, which is significant, as you will see in a moment. So the first thing that they did with this was basically f- similar to the monkeys. They connected the microchip output to a robotic arm, a much more um, advanced robotic arm than one of his colleagues had built, which had like fingers and there's pictures of it, like holding an egg. Um, cool. And they found that it was perfectly able to mimic his own arm movements. So if he was moving arm around, then the robot arm would move in exactly the same way. Not only that, he could do that over the internet. So that's so good. Which is so cool. He went like to Columbia University uh, and then just connected himself to the robot arm in Reading over the internet. And not only could he move the arm around, but he could receive sensory feedback from it. So he could like feel it when it was picking stuff up. Which is crazy cool. So that ticks the box for telekinesis. <laughs> yep. Uh, the next thing he did was um, connected the chip in, I think it was a chip in his arm, to ultraviolet receptors attached to a baseball cap. And that means that he could essentially experience a form of extrasensory perception because he was receiving ultraviolet input, which is not normally available to him. And had he been able to you know, practice with it for long enough, the assumption is that he would eventually have been able to kind of see an ultraviolet with his arm, if you like. Um, so that's yeah. Spidey Sense. Um, <laughs> much. Um, I, 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 I'd like to ask, superhero, supervillain? Um, seemingly superhero, although not if you're a philosopher, and particularly right. if, not if you're a man called John Searle, which we might come to <laughs> later. Um, yeah, he does seem to be very much on the superhero side of things, but possibly one of the ones who at some point will suffer a tragic fall where in a, the kind of like atomic bomb slash brain transplant thing, your science is used for evil, um, right. which seems fairly inevitable when it comes to like cyborgs and cyber implants. Um, yeah. Then the final, and I think the coolest, um, <laughs> potentially most dangerous thing uh, in terms of social, socially dangerous thing he did was he had his wife was implanted with a, a simpler version of the, the electrode in her arm. And again, over the internet, remotely, they were therefore able to experience each other's sensory uh, input and kind of motor output uh, over the internet. So, yep, that that is telepathy. That is arm-based telepathy. Um, and so yeah that that's just amazing so he was receiving uh sense data from his wife's arm uh which is just mind-blowingly cool i love that i mean not specifically the kind of haptic tactile thing because assuming that i had a loved one and to share that with i'd find that really weird oh i'm I'm sure it is and you can understand why it, it kind of had to be his wife because imagine doing that to someone you don't really know very well like it would be there would yeah that would be a peculiar and distressing sensation. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm going to say, I don't want to break up the podcast, but I would not have your arm chip in my arm. <laughs> I, there is no way. My arm would start doing bad, bad things. <laughs> I mean that in the sense that it would start like knocking things over and breaking stuff. Yes, there is a I very, know. very I know. obvious self-destruct to make know. here, but we're not going to make it. We're not that kind of guy. That's the psychoanalytic joke. <laughs> um. So anyway, um, this is what's done. And actually, to refer back to your previous question about the danger of it, like, damaging your arm, 
this was obviously a massive concern for them because you're kind of putting something in the way of the nerve fibers. Yeah. As it transpired, they, they've done tests on his actual hand function and it's completely fine. And what it would appear is that the nerve fibers have actually grown around the microchip. Um, right, so it can't come out <laughs> basically, without paralyzing I mean, his hand. They are working on upgrading it to because it has quite a short lifespan, I think. And so they're working okay. on one which contains its own power supply um, and is like a permanent fixture. Uh, so it'll be a bit like a pacemaker. Okay, yeah, exactly. Kind of awesome in a different way. Yeah. Um, and so obviously, like, this this in itself, right, you know, anyone who's played any of the Deus Ex games or, like, watched Ghost in the Shell or any number of many films and TV shows and everything, you can immediately see where all the ridiculous possibilities of this go. Um, and it is frankly awesome. And I am now a huge fan of Kevin Warwick and desperately want to read his book. Um, there, there are also a couple of quotes from him. He seems to be quite a funny guy. Um, he has a bit of a bee in his bonnet about uh, artificial intelligence and philosophers who claim that artificial, like true artificial, artificial intelligence is impossible. Um, particularly, uh, as I mentioned, there's a guy called John Searle who... Um, sort of has is champion the idea that it would be it's sort of philosophically impossible for a robot to experience consciousness um and in response to this it, he did this with a very sort of slightly shallow analogy which tim do you i think you've possibly yeah i'll analogy. do it because yeah. i share uh mr professor warwick's grudge against uh John Searle from my A-level philosophy in which we did discuss this. Searle says, a computer uh, is like a man in a closed room that has only a letterbox in it. And someone posts in through the input, input hole um, a Chinese character. And he goes to his book that's in this room and finds what's the appropriate Chinese character to output and then pushes it out. And if you ask someone, does this man know Chinese, you'd go, well, no, he knows the input-output relationship for a system which he consults from a logbook. Um, so, and that's what computers are. Computer knowledge is just outputting what it knows the correct response to that input is, which is an analogy in my mind that stands no comparison with neurology <laughs> at all. So the quote from Kevin Warwick r regarding this is, John Searle put forward the view that a shoe is not conscious, therefore a computer cannot be conscious. By the same sort of analogy, though, a cabbage is not conscious, therefore a human cannot be conscious, um, which is pretty reasonable. Um, he talks again about machine intelligence. These are all, once again, deep and detailed research from Wikipedia um, <laughs> on machine intelligence. Uh, our robots have roughly the equivalent of 50 to 100 brain cells. That means they're about as intelligent as a slug or a snail or a Manchester United supporter. Um, I can only hope that John Searle is a Man Manchester United supporter. <laughs> um, he, he has a, a thing about philosophers in general. Um, uh, kind of a rhetorical question. Shouldn't I join the ranks of philosophers and merely make unsubstantiated claims about the wonders of human consciousness? Shouldn't I stop trying to do some science and just keep my head down? Indeed not. Um, we, he, doesn't he say something like, uh, 
all humans are philosophers. The ones without paid employment to do anything else yeah. are the real philosophers. I feel that we are all philosophers, and those who describe themselves as philosophers simply do not have a day job to go to. <laughs> <laughs> it's cruel, but it is funny. There is a certain degree of truth in it. I think, I mean, the, the point about the argument against artificial intelligence that I personally would make, and many more intelligent and clever and more well-positioned people probably already have is that the the debate the philosophical debate of artificial artificial intelligence and machine consciousness is hampered very much by the fact that if you don't have at the very least a basic understanding of neurology you are really in no position to discuss it because you just you don't understand the possibilities um, it requires such a degree of kind of technical understanding before you can start talking about the philosophical questions um, that it's kind of pointless to, in my mind at least, to try and argue, yes, there can be, no, there can't be um, true machine consciousness without essentially a background in neuroscience. I, I do believe that there are legitimate grounds for philosophical inquiry, but in this case... Mm. I would say it's not legitimate because, as you say, in order to make any kind of useful analogy or thought about it, you have to ignore what human knowledge is or change what human knowledge means to a point that it's not really meaningful. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it, there is a huge uh, kind of reservoir of potential philosophical debate and ethical debate within the context of, uh, you know, cyberization, human augmentation. Oh, yeah. But the necessity of the people involved being in the field at a scientific level before they start taking the philosophical angle is kind of paramount in my opinion. Um, and so to move on for that ridiculously serious conversation there. Um, and this is the quote that I want actually would very much like to end this podcast on apart from some silly outro, um, <laughs> which is a quote from Kevin Warwick. And I think I probably agree with him. Uh, there is no way I want to stay a mere human. Um, and with a robot arm, telekinesis, extrasensory perception and telepathy, I don't think he really is. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It does sound a bit similar to the speech made by Cylon number one <laughs> at the very end of Star Galactica. <laughs> I don't want to be human. I want to see ultraviolet. I want to smell x-rays. <laughs> Instead of being trapped in this ludicrous little body, that is such a terrible. They want to see great beams glinting off the shoulder of Orion. Well, there's that as well. <laughs> Edward James Olmos, uh, the unifying factor, of course. <laughs> Watch Dexter Series 6, all of you. Um, okay, well, yeah, maybe that is a conclusion enough. It seems to be. Uh, and it only leaves for us to say how you can contact us. There might be a new way this week. Yeah. Eh? Exciting news. Uh, we have a podcast Twitter feed. Hooray! Uh, and it is at Team Psychomedia. Um, I am continually distressed by the fact that Psychomedia seems to have been taken up in every online medium that I can find. Um, but yes. Yeah, but we're still the high results on Google, so. That's okay then. At Come and have a go if you think you're hard enough, Spanish or Italian media company. <laughs> um, I shouldn't say that. They're going to destroy us with a video. They probably would. Um, so, yes, at Team Psychomedia. Um, What's our rival team, Ben? I don't know. Yeah. Probably Team Squire, but there's already <laughs> Team Buckley, so 
that should probably be a Twitter thing already. Um, we we'll we'll come up with a nemesis at some point. I think like the natural progression of of comedic podcasting is that a nemesis will emerge. Um, yep. If you podcast, they will come. Um, <laughs> Uh, so yeah, uh, uh, please leave feedback at uh, at Team Psychomedia. Um, this is significant because I have access to it as opposed to previously, where all Twitter feedback was just going to Tim. Um, Hooray! So yeah, cool. Uh, I am going to treat it as if it's you, though, a bit, a bit, a bit like the bugle one, where it's half bugle and half actually Andy Zaltzman, which is fine by me. So yeah, um, I will probably I will endeavour to like post things about when we're doing the research and if anything cool pops up in psychology we might not have to talk about or when we're recording the podcast and all stuff like this well that's, um, that's great so so much more engaged than i am well yeah this is entirely dependent on my ridiculous workload which has suddenly been plonked on me um which i should probably go and like go to the department and deal with at some point <laughs> in the next hour um that is assuming that skyrim hasn't arrived yet <laughs> oh right that's the defining factor yeah. well before ben destroys his professional career on account of the elder scrolls <laughs> let's say goodbye goodbye listen here robo rhesus macaque boy i need you to go and steal me some silicon so I could make a telepathy chip to talk to my comatose frozen wife. They said I was mad to try and give a monkey a robot arm and make it do my bidding. Mad, I tell you. When we all know that madness is a societal construct and everyone falls somewhere on a psychotic or neurotic spectrum, stop eating those blasted peanuts. Why did I have to use evil to make them so delicious? No hero can stop me now, even if they are glowing green. Now go, my, my, well, actually, is it sexual harassment to call a monkey my pretty? Better dial Herman Cain at Republican supervillain headquarters when I'm done. Wait, no, no, Robo, no, damn it, how did I get peanuts in my head? No! Tell, tell my wife to tell her that my last wish is for her to listen to the Psychomedia podcast, which this week starred Tim and Ben, and they were talk, talk, talking about me.